Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. Uh, we are in just the beginning stages of exploring the entire story of Scripture from beginning to end. And we're doing this in preparation for spending the next few months studying each individual book of the Old Testament. And I think just a great way to begin studying the Old Testament is by studying the story of Scripture as a whole so that we can grab firmly on the main points and so we don't get lost uh, in the weeds. So we are studying using the great book, God's Big Picture. And so we've got a link for that on the website. And in the show notes, I would encourage you guys to check that book out. And the the format that we're going to use to study Scripture, as, as we talked about in our first episode in this series, is through the lens of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, when I say that phrase throughout this entire unit, just think God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And the way that God's big picture divides the story of Scripture is into eight distinct phases. Eight distinct phases as the kingdom of God grows and develops and changes and heads towards its ultimate culmination in Jesus Christ. And all eight of these phases begin with the letter P. And so we're going to study the first phase of the kingdom today, and that is the pattern of the kingdom. And so we are beginning our examination of the kingdom of God all the way back in the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we want to notice four important truths about creation. The first important truth about creation is this. God is the author of creation. Now, if it is true that God is the author of creation, and it is true, then five things follow from that. The first thing that is true because God is the author of creation, that means that God alone is eternal. Matter is not eternal. God created the universe, the Latin phrase is ex nihilo, from nothing, out of nothing. God and matter are not co-eternal. God did not find a bunch of matter and decide, hey, you know what I'm going to create a universe out of this. No, God spoke matter into being. Matter is not eternal. God alone has no beginning. He alone is eternal. Second, since God is the author of creation, we can say it must be true that God has always been a trinity. We see all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, involved in the process of creation. We know that the Father is the one who takes the initiative in creation. He speaks. But we know that the Spirit is involved because Genesis 1-2 says the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And as you read through Scripture, you come over and over again to place in the New Testament, like Colossians 1-16, that say that the Son, Jesus Christ, was the Father's agent in creation. Colossians 1.16, Paul writes, For by him, speaking of Jesus, by Jesus all things were created. So all things were created through Jesus, by Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, obviously, when we talk about the Trinity, we are we are paddling out into deep waters beyond our ability to fully understand. But we do want to affirm that we see the Trinity involved in the process of creation. The third truth that follows from God being the author of creation is that God was pleased with what he made. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And you would expect that. God does all things well. God is perfect in all that he says and does and is. And that means that God was pleased with creation. The fourth truth that follows from God being the author of creation is that God made 
everything in the beginning. Now, why do I emphasize the word made here? Well, we want to affirm that God didn't just sort of set the world in motion and then all these other things form. Like God didn't just light the fuse on the Big Bang and walk away and let evolution take its place. No, God made, shaped, formed, crafted, created like an artist in a workshop. God made everything in the beginning. Fifth truth that follows from God being the author of creation. We know that creation is fallen and broken, and we will get into that, obviously, in our next phase of the kingdom but God will redeem everything in the end. God made this world. Sin has broken this world, but God will not allow sin to have the final word. God made everything. Sin has broken his good creation, but God will not only restore, but even make things better than they were in the beginning. The second truth about creation that we want to affirm is that God is the king of creation. There was a religious and philosophical movement in the 17th and 18th centuries in England, and it's mostly gone, thankfully, Uh, and it's the idea of deism. And deism was the formal belief that God created the universe, set the universe in motion, but then stepped away, like, like God had something better to do, and that God no longer has anything to do with the world as it is, that just we're just here on our own. And and nothing could be further from the truth of Scripture. God is not only the creator of the universe, he is the king who is intimately involved with his creation. So the only appropriate response to God is to acknowledge his rule and worship him. Psalm 95, 3-7 gets to the heart of this when it says, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We are to worship the God who made everything. Now, here is an important truth to keep in mind. God is everywhere. He is fully present, omnipresent, fully present at every part of his creation. God is everywhere, but everywhere is not God. You can meet with God by the river, but the river is not God. God is there, and God is distinct from the river. Another truth to keep in mind, God made everything, but everything is not God. Again, God made that river, but that river is not God. God, here's the big theological term, God is transcendent. To say that God is transcendent means that God is categorically greater than everything that he has made. He's not just better than the stars, better than human beings, better than angels. He's categorically different and superior to everything that he has made, and he is distinct from what he has made. If you think about the what you consider to be the, the grossest or lowest creature on earth, to me, when I think about it, I just think about a slug, right? Just slimy and slow and gross. And scripture, good news for me, scripture would affirm that I am superior to a slug, right? Big win for me. But friends, the gap between me and a slug is nothing compared to the gap between me and God. He is just categorically better than me. He is transcendent. And this, friends, is why God hates idolatry. Because if God made everything, to worship something he made instead of him is the ultimate insult. I love to cook. And I love to try new recipes, and I really like my wife to like the things that I make, and I love our guests to like the things that we make. So if I labored over a stove or, you know, over something to bake or, 
you know, I love to make pizza. That's my favorite, right? If I, if I labored over this pizza and I set it before my guests and they eat it and they begin to worship and bow down and thank the pizza and praise the pizza as if the pizza made itself and ignored me, I would be really offended. And that's, again, a small picture of what it means when we worship the creature instead of the creator. We are insulting the creator. And this is why God hates idolatry. God is the king of creation. So we must acknowledge his rule and worship him because he is transcendent. And our duty as creatures is to submit to him and give him the glory that rightly belongs to him. Revelation 4, 11, here's what they're singing in heaven right now to our God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is God worthy? Well, here's one reason. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So the first important truth about creation is that God is the author of creation. The second truth is that God is the king of creation. And the third important truth for us to consider today is that human beings are the pinnacle of creation. What makes humans so special? Well, we're made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 27 through 28 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, there's a lot of literature out there about what it means to be made in the image of God. And as always, I think a lot of people are mostly right. And so rather than pick one thing about what it means to be made in the image of God, here's three things that I think it means to be made in the image of God. First, we're made sharing characteristics with God. God has perfect love and perfect wisdom and perfect strength and perfect mercy, but we can all exhibit those characteristics to greater or lesser degrees, unlike anything else. Right? We can show mercy. Lions can't show mercy. We can make wise choices. Stars can't make wise choices. Right? So we are made sharing characteristics with God. We're also made for a purpose defined by God. In the ancient world, most people couldn't read, and so to mark out their territories— Kings and emperors and, and lords, they wouldn't put up billboards, you know, welcome to Alabama. Instead, they would put up images of themselves. They would put up statues of themselves at border places in the middle of cities and towns. And it was to constantly remind everyone that that's the king. Like We're living in his territory. And by spreading his images all over his land, the king was sort of broadcasting his glory. And this is what human beings were made to do. We are the image of God. We're not allowed to make images of God because God has already made an image. It's us. And we have been given a purpose. And that purpose is to reflect the glory of God out into the world, to spread his image everywhere in this universe so that everyone can be reminded, oh yeah, the Lord is the king over this place. The third thing that it means to be made in the image of God is that we're made for relationships with God. We can have a, a pronoun relationship with God. We can say to God, I love you, right? I, a person, love you, another person. And this is a relationship unlike anything else in creation. It is not as great, obviously, as the relationship between the father and the son, but it's greater even than the relationship between the father and angels. They're his servants. We're his children. So we are made in the image of God, and we, and we alone, not angels, not stars, not lions, not blue whales, we have been given responsibility for the world. Genesis one twenty six. let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We were made 
to rule over God's world. It's still his world, but we're made to rule over it, not to abuse it as tyrants, but rather to cultivate it as stewards. So the first important truth about creation, God is the author of creation. Second, God is the king of creation. Third, human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Fourth, rest is the goal of creation. Now, I believe with all of my heart that all of Scripture, all of the words of Scripture are breathed out and inspired. Every word on the page, breathed out and inspired by God and profitable for us. The Bible is inspired, but chapter divisions are not. Chapter divisions in between like Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and so on and so forth, those are a relatively recent development. For most of the history of Scripture, entire books, be they Genesis or Matthew, were just on one scroll. It wasn't until several hundred years ago that European authors began to put in chapter divisions, dividing one from another, and then verse divisions. And most of these chapter divisions are fine or neutral, and some are quite good. Others are not good. And the the division between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is one of those bad chapter divisions that I wish that we could redo. So Genesis 1, verse 31, as we know it, as it's in our scripture, says that, and God saw everything that he had made. It's right after the creation of human beings. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And this kind of brings creation, like the curtain comes down. And it makes it seem like that humans were the purpose of God's creation. But we're not. Now, don't get this confused. We are the climax of creation. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're the greatest thing that he made. But we're not the purpose of God's creation. Rest was the purpose of God's creation. Because the first verses of Genesis 2, 1 through 3, really should be the last three verses of Genesis chapter 1. Because here's how Genesis 2 begins. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because God rested on it from all of his work that he had done in creation. So God rested on the seventh day, and he has been resting ever since. Now, what does that mean? God doesn't get tired, so he doesn't need a nap, right? What does it mean to say that God has been resting? Well, he's resting from the work of creation. The job of creation was perfectly done. Everything was good, right? It was very good. There's nothing left for God to do with regards to creation, Now, God is still at work sustaining his creation. Hebrews says that God holds the universe together by the word of his power. And and this is one of the most beautiful images that I've ever heard of. And and I want to share this with you. When you think about what does it mean to say that God is sustaining creation? This is what it means. So if I were to make a a paper football, right, and I I fold together a piece of paper into like a little thick triangle that I can flip it with my finger. I'm sorry if you've never played paper football. It's not that great. So you haven't really missed out on anything. But if I make that paper football, yes, I am the creator of that paper football. But once I make it, that paper football no longer depends on me. I can leave it on a desk. I can throw it in the trash. And and that paper football has its own existence independent from me. But think about if I were to be singing a song and I'm holding out a note at the end of a verse and that note that I'm holding out only continues to exist so long as I am singing. If I close my mouth, that note goes away. That note is dynamically depending on me every moment for its existence. And that, my friends, is how God is sustaining his creation. He didn't just make it and walk away. He is sustaining it every moment. 
But God is resting in the sense of he is no longer at work creating a universe. And God made human beings for the purpose of them entering into that rest with him. Now we get Genesis 1, which gives us a big picture angle on the creation of the entire universe. And then Genesis 2 retells the story of creation, but it zooms in on humanity to show us that this is life as it was meant to be lived. And life is meant to be a series of perfect relationships. The perfect relationship that we see first is the relationship between God and human beings. God lovingly cares for the man that he has made. He sets him in a beautiful garden. He provides him with his love. But friends, remember, it is God who sets the rules. Adam and God don't enter into some kind of negotiation where they each, you know, hey, here's something I want and I'll give you something you want. No, God sets the rules. But God is perfect. And so his law, as an expression of his perfect character, is good. His law is not oppressive. His law is for their good and for their pleasure. And this, friends, is one of those essential truths that we just can't say enough. There is no freedom outside of submitting to God. There's only death. We must submit to God's rule, not only because he's really big and he'll make us, but because that's where life and joy is found. His law is for their good. And the one command, the one negative command that God gave them is don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you'll die. You'll die when you do it. His law is for their good. So we see perfect relationships between God and humans. We see perfect relationships between man and woman. Now, man is created first, a literal Adam created from the dust of the earth, and then woman is created as his helper, right? And and to paraphrase what one pastor said, woman was not made from Adam's foot, so so as to say to be under him as his slave. She was not created from his head, so as to be over him as his superior, but she was made from his rib to be his companion and his helper by his side. Man is the leader. He is created as the leader of the family, but his authority is not intended to be abusive, but life-giving. And Adam and Eve have complete intimacy, no fear, no guilt. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, obviously, there is a sexual component of this nakedness, but that's not the key emphasis here. The key emphasis is the relational intimacy of being able to be naked and not ashamed and not guilty and not afraid. This is life as it's meant to be lived between human beings. We also see perfection between humans and creation. Humans and creation are working together in harmony. The earth is bringing forth its fruit. Everything is functioning as God made it to be. And this is life as it was meant to be. But we know that this is not how life is today. And the reason that life is not like this today is going to be the topic of our next episode. Because something's going to happen in Genesis chapter 3. We call it the fall, where Adam and Eve choose independence and rebellion against trusting and submitting to God. And ever since the fall, God has been at work. He's been at work to reestablish his kingdom, to call people back into fellowship with him, to call people to enter into his rest. Now, as Christians, we experience some of that rest right now when we trust in Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, maybe the most precious words in all of scripture. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So to every single person who is laboring 
under their own power to earn approval from God, which is all of us. Jesus says, come to me and I give you rest. I think the most precious truth expressed in this is Jesus' own heart, his own character. This is the only thing Jesus says about his own personality, for lack of a better term. He says much to us about his identity. He's the son of man, the son of David, the the great I am. He says much to us about his work, right? He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But the only thing Jesus wants us to know about what he's like is that he's gentle and lowly in heart. And he is a savior who gives rest. So that's what we have right now when we trust in Jesus. But as Christians, we can look forward to experiencing rest permanently in the new heavens and new earth. We have spiritual rest right now in Jesus, but we know that we often do not have emotional or physical or financial or relational rest. But one day, friends, Jesus will come back and the earth will be remade and restored and we will experience all of the rest forever in the new creation. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so we look forward and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, bring your rest. So if you think about the kingdom of God, where we are, we're in our first phase, the pattern of the kingdom. God's people are Adam and Eve. God's place is the garden. God's rule comes through his word and the blessing is perfect relationships. But as we said, we know that's not how things are today. And we will examine what went wrong in our next episode. But for now, my friends, take up your lead. God bless. 